Chapter One of Bull Hunter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. Bull Hunter by Max Brand. Chapter One. It was the big central taproot which baffled them. They had hewed easily through the great side roots, large as branches, covered with soft brown bark. They had dug down and cut through the forest of tender small roots below. But when they had passed the main body of the stump and worked under it, they found that their hole around the trunk was not large enough in diameter to enable them to reach the taproot and cut through it. They could only reach it feebly with a hatchet, fraying it, but there was no chance for a free swing to sever the tough wood. Instead of widening the hole at once, they kept laboring at the root, working the stump back and forth, as though they hoped to crystallize the stubborn taproot and snap it like a wire. Still it held and defied them. They laid hold of it together and tugged with a grunt. Something tore beneath that effort, but the stump held, and upward progress ceased. They stopped, too tired for profanity, and gazed down the mountainside after the manner of baffled men who look far off from that thing that troubles them. They could tell by the trees that it was a high altitude. There were no cottonwoods, though cottonwoods will follow a stream for more than a mile above sea level. Far below them a pale mist obscured the beautiful silver spruce which had reached their upward limit. Around the cabin marched the scattering of the balsam fir. They were nine thousand feet above the sea, at least. Still higher up the sallow forest of lodgepole pines began. And above these, beyond the timberline, rose the bald summit itself. They were big men, framed for such a country, defying the roughness with a roughness of their own, these stalwart sons of old Bill Campbell. Both Harry and Joe Campbell were fully six feet tall, with mighty bones and sinews and work-toughened muscles to justify their stature. Behind them stood their home, a shack better suited for the housing of cattle than of men. But such leather-skinned men as these were more tender to their horses than to themselves. They slept and ate in the shack, but they lived in the wind and the sun. Although they had looked down the stern slopes to the lower Rockies, they did not see the girl who followed the loosely winding trail. She was partly sheltered by the firs and came out just above them. They began moiling at the stump again, sweating, cursing, and the girl halted her horse nearby. The profanity did not distress her. She was so accustomed to it that the words had lost all edge and point for her but her freckled face stirred to a smile of pleasure at the sight of their strength, as they alternately smote at the taproot and then strove in creaking grunting unison to work it loose. They remained so long oblivious to her presence that at length she called, Why don't you dig a bigger hole, boys? She laughed in delight as they jerked up their heads in astonishment. Her laughter was young and sweet to the ear, but there was not a great deal outside her laughter that was attractive about her. 
However, Joe and Harry gaped and grinned and blushed at her in time old fashion, for she lived in a country where to be a woman is sufficient. Beauty is an unnecessary luxury, soon taxed out of existence by the life. She possessed the main essentials of social power. She could dance unflaggingly from dark to dawn at the nearest schoolhouse dance, chattering every minute. She could maintain a rugged silence from dawn to dark again as she rode her pony home. Harry Campbell took off his hat, not in politeness, but to scratch his head. Say, Jesse, where'd you drop from? Didn't see you coming no ways. Maybe I come down like rain, said Jesse. All three laughed heartily at this jest. Jesse swung sideways in her saddle with the lithe grace of a boy, dropped her elbow on the high pommel, and gave advice. You've got a pretty bad taproot under yonder. Better chop out a bigger hole, boys. But say, what you clearing this here land for? Ain't no good for nothing, is it? She looked around her. Here and there clearing around the shanty ate raggedly into the forest. But still the plowed land was chopped up with a jutting of boulders. Sure it ain't no good for nothing, said Joe. It's just the old man's idea. He jerked a grimy thumb over his shoulder to indicate the controlling and absent power of the old man somewhere in the woods. Sure makes him glum when we ain't working. If there ain't nothing worthwhile to do, he always sets us to grubbing up roots, and if we ain't digging up roots, we've got to get out old Maggie Mare and try to plow. Plowing rocks like them, nobody but Bull can do it. I didn't know Bull could do nothing, said the girl with interest. Ah, he's a fool right enough, said Harry, but he has just sort of a head for knowing where rocks are under the ground, and somehow he seems to make old Maggie Hoss know where they lie too. Outside of that, he sure ain't no good. Everybody knows that. Kind of too bad he ain't got no brains, said the girl. All his strength is in his back, and none is in his head, my dad says. If he had some part of sense, he'd be a powerful good hand. Sure would be, agreed Harry, but he ain't no good now. Give him an axe, maybe, and he hits one or two wallopin' licks with it, and then stands and rests on the handle and starts to dreaming like a fool. Same way with everything. But say, Joe, maybe he could start this stump out of the hole. But I seen you both try to get the stump up, said the girl in wonder. Get Bull mad, and he can lift the pile, Joe assured her. Go find him, Harry. Harry obediently shouted, Bull, oh Bull. There was no answer. Most likely he's reading, observed Joe. He doesn't never hear nothing then. Go look for him, Harry. Big Harry strode to the door of the hut. How come he understands books, said the girl. I couldn't never make nothing out of him. Me neither, agreed Joe in sympathy. But maybe Bull don't understand. He just likes to read because he can sit still and do it. Never was a lazier gent than Bull. Harry turned at the door of the shack. Yep, reading, he announced, with disgust. He cupped his hands over his mouth and bellowed through the doorway. Hey! There was a startled grunt within, a deep, heavy voice, and a thick articulation. Presently a huge man came into the doorway and leaned there, 
his figure filling it. There was nothing freakish about his build. He was simply over-normal in bulk, from the big head to the heavy feet. He was no more than a youth in age, but the great size and the bewildered puckering of his forehead made him seem older. The book was still in his hand. Hey, returned Harry, we didn't call you out here to read to us. Leave the book behind. Bull looked down at the book in his hand, seemed to waken from a trance, then, with a muffled sound of apology, dropped the book behind him. Come here. He slumped out from the house. His gait was like his body, his stride large and loose. The lack of nervous energy which kept his mind from a high tension was shown again in the heavy fall of his feet and the forward slump of his head. His hands dangled aimlessly at his side, as though in need of occupation. A ragged thatch of blond hair covered his head, and it was sunburned to straw color at the edges. His costume was equally rough. He wore no belt but one strap. From his right hip, crossed behind his back, over the bulging muscles of his shoulder, to the front of his left hip. The trousers, which the simple brace supported, were patched overalls, frayed to loose threads halfway down the calf, where they were met by the tops of immense cowhide boots. As for the shirt, the sleeves were inches too short, and the unbuttoned cuffs flapped around the burly forearms. If it had been fastened together at the throat, he would have choked. He seemed, in a word, to be bulging out of his clothes. One expected a mighty rendering if he made a strong effort. The bulk of a man slouched forward with steps both huge and hesitant, pausing between them. When he saw the girl, he stopped short, and his brow puckered more than before. One felt that, coming from the shadow, he was dazed and startled by the brilliant mountain sunshine, and the eyes were dull and alarmed. It was a handsome face in a way, but a little too heavy, with flesh too inert like the rest of his body and his muscular movements. "'She ain't gonna bite you,' said Harry Campbell. "'Come over here to the stump,' he whispered to the girl. "'Laugh at him.' She obeyed his command. It brought a flush to the face of Bull Hunter and made his head bow. He shuffled to the stump and stood aimlessly beside it. "'Get down into the hole, you fool,' ordered Joe. He and Harry took a certain pride in ordering their cousin around. It was like performing with a lion in the presence of a lady. It was manipulating an elephant by power of the unaided voice. Slowly Bull Hunter dropped his great feet into the hole and then raised his head a little and looked wistfully to the brothers for further orders. But only half his mind was with them. The other half was with the story in the book. Their Quentin Durward had been nodding at his guard in the castle, and the evil-faced little king had just sprung out and wrenched the weapon from the hands of the sleepy boy. Bull Hunter could see the story clearly, very clearly. The scar on the face of Le Balaf glistened for him. He had veritably tasted the little round loaves of French bread that the adventurer had eaten with the pseudo-merchant. But to step out of that world of words, into this keen sunlight, ah, there was the difference. 
The minds which one found in the pages of a book were understandable, but the minds of living men, how terrible they were. One could never tell what passed behind the bright eyes of other human beings. They mocked one. When they seemed sad, they might be about to laugh. The minds of the two brothers eluded him, mocked him, slipped from beneath the slow grasp of his comprehension. They whipped him with their scorn. They dogged him with their wits. They bewildered him with their mockery. But they were nothing compared to the laughter of the girl. It went through him like the flash and point of La Balaf's long sword. He was helpless before that sound of mirth. He wanted to hold up his hands and cower away from her and from her dancing eyes. So he stood, ponderous, tortured, and the three pairs of clear eyes watched him and enjoyed his torture. Better, far better, that dark castle in ancient France and the wicked Oliver and the yet more wicked Louis. Lay hold on that stump, shouted Harry. He heard the directions through a haze. It was twice repeated before he bowed and set his great hands upon the ragged projections where the side roots had been cut away. He settled his grip and waited. He was glad because this bowed position gave him a chance to look down to the ground and avoid their cruel eyes. How bright those eyes were, thought Bull, and how clearly they saw all things. He never doubted the justice behind their judgments of him. All that Bull asked from the world was a merciful silence, to let him grub in his books now and then, or else tell him how to go about some simple work, such as digging with a pick. Here one's muscles worked, and there was no problem to disturb wits which were still gathering wool in the pages of some old tale. But there were shrilling new directions at him. Perhaps they had been calling to him several times. You blamed idiot. Are you going to stand there all day? We didn't give you the stump to rest on. Pull it up. He started with a sense of guilt and tugged up. His fingers slipped off their separate grips, and the stump though it groaned against the taproot under the strain, did not come out. "'It don't seem to budge somehow,' said Bull in his big, soft, plaintive voice. Then he waited for the laughter. There was always laughter, no matter what he did or said, but he never grew calloused against it. It was the one pain which ever pierced the mists of his brain and cut him to the quick. And he was right. There was laughter again. He stood suffering mutely under it. The girl's face became grave. She murmured to Harry, Ever try praising to Big Stupid? Him? Are you joshing me, Jesse? What has he ever done to be praised about? You watch, said the girl, growing excited with her idea. She called, Say, Bull. He lifted his head, but not his eyes. Those eyes studied the impatient feet of the girl's mustang. He waited for another stroke of wit that would bring forth a fresh shower of laughter at his expense. Bull, you're mighty big and strong. About the biggest and strongest man I ever seen. Was this a new and subtle form of mockery? He waited dully. I seen Harry and Joe both try to pull up that root, and they couldn't so much as budget. But I'll bet you could do it all alone, Bull. You just try. I'll bet you could. 
It amazed him. He lifted his eyes at length, his face suffused with a flush. His big cloudy eyes were glistening with moisture. Do you mean that? he asked huskily. For this terrible clear-eyed creature, this mocking mind, this alert cruel wit, was actually speaking words of confidence. A great, dim joy welled up in the heart of Bull Hunter. He shook the forelock out of his eyes. You just try, will you, Bull? I'll try. He bowed. Again his thick fingers sought for grip, found places, worked down through the soft dirt and the pulpy bark to solid wood, and then he began to lift. It was a gradual process. His knees gave, sagging under the strain from the arms. Then the back began to grow rigid, and the legs in turn grew stiff as every muscle fell into play. The shoulders pushed forward and down. The forearms, revealed by the short sleeves, showed a bewildering tangle of corded muscle, and at the wrists the tendons sprang out as distinct and white as the new strings of a violin. The three spectators were undergoing a change. The suppressed grins of the two brothers faded. They glanced at the girl to see if she were not laughing at the result of her words to Big Bull. But the girl was staring. She had set that mighty power to work, and she was amazed by the thing she saw. And they, looking back at Bull, were amazed in turn. They had seen him lift great logs, wrench boulders from the earth, but always it had been a proverb within the Campbell family that Bull would make only one attempt and, failing in the first effort, would try no more. They had never seen the mysterious resources of his strength called upon. Now they watched first the settling and then the expansion of the body of their big cousin. His shoulders began to tremble. They heard deep, harsh panting, like the breathing of a horse as it tugs a ponderous load up a hill. And still he had not reached the limits of his power. He seemed to grow into the soil, his feet ground deeper into the soft dirt, and ever there was something in him remaining to be tapped. It seemed to the brothers to be merely vast, unexplored recesses of muscle. But even then it was a prodigious thing to watch the strain on the stump increase moment by moment. That something of the spirit was being called upon to aid in the work was quite beyond their comprehension. There was something like a groan from Bull, a queer animal sound, that made all three spectators shiver where they stood, for it showed that the limit of that apparently inexhaustible strength had been reached and that now the anguish of last effort was going into the work. They saw the head bowed lower. The shoulders were now bunching and swelling up on either side. Then came a faint rendering sound, like cloth slowly torn. It was answered by something strangely like a snarl from the laborer. Something jerked through his body as though a whip had been flicked across his back. With a great rendering, and a loud snap, the big stump came up. A little shower of dirt spouted up with the parting of the taproot. The trunk was flung high, but not out of the hands of Bull Hunter. He whirled it around his head, laughing. There was a ring and clearness in that laughter that they had never heard before. 
he dashed the stump on the ground. "'It's out!' exclaimed Bull. "'Look there!' He strode upon them. As he straightened up, he became huger than ever. They shrank from him, from the veins which still bulged on his forehead, and from the sweat and pallor of that vast effort. The very Mustang winced from this mountain of a man who came with a long, sweeping, springing stride. On his face was a strange joy, as of the explorer who tops the mountains and sees the beauty of the promised land beneath him. He held out his hand. Lady, I gotta thank you. You taught me how. But she shrank from his outstretched hand, as though she had labored to a larger end than she dreamed and was terrified by the thing she had made. You, you've got a red stain on your hands. Oh! He came to a stop sharply. The sharp edges, where the roots had been cut away, had worked through the skin, and his hands were literally caked with mud and stained red. Bull looked down at his hands vaguely. It came to Harry that Bull was taking up a trifle too much of Jessie's attention. The next thing they knew, she would be inviting him to come to the next dance down her way, and they would have the big hulk of a man shaming himself and his uncle's family. Go back to the house, he ordered sharply. We don't have no more need of you. Bull obeyed, stumbling along, and still looking down at his wounded hands. End of chapter 1